find this. Uh, turn to the end of the Old Testament and then turn backwards about ten pages or so. It's just after Micah and before Habakkuk. Nahum chapter 1. And our main part of our passage is from verses 8 to 15, but we'll go ahead and start from the beginning since it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book. It says, The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserve of wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord have his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers, but shall languish them. And Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languished. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned in his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. And in the midst of that, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he know of them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make another end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make another end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folding together as forms, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee, the imagine of evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. You know, in this passage here, you see it sometimes going from second person to third person. You know, sometimes it's, he's directing this prophecy against um, Nineveh and the Assyrians, while simultaneously given comfort to his people Israel um, that they won't be afflicted by the Assyrians again through, through God's sovereignty. <clears throat> thus say of the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord have given a commandment concerning thee, <clears throat> that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image, and the molten image I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Dear Heavenly Father, we just ask, Lord, that you be with the declaration of this message again as you presented it 
a um, couple thousand years, uh, um, 25, 2600 years ago, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that the message will likewise be a warning and a caution to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I won't go over all the background as we went on the opening message, but just as a reminder, um, it's written about 662 B.C. to 627 B.C. Um, sometime after um, the river of Thebes um, flooded and, and damaged the territory there um, of the <coughs> Babylonians and the other um, groups. But um, we see the prophecy of Nahum ends up being fulfilled in 612 B.C. Um, and, and yet when we see it in writing, it's the prophecy is being written. It's being said as if it's in the present tense. Um, it's, it's, it's a present proclamation of judgment that will be coming upon Nineveh. Nineveh was already spared once. In the days of Jonah. That Jonah didn't want to go. But we see that he finally, after being swallowed by a well, being vomited up, and so and being in the belly, he, he told the Lord, I will go. And we see that he ends up going, and, and then Nineveh repents. They, they, they turn from their evil ways, and they turn unto the Lord Jehovah God, a nation that was known for their idolatry, their paganism. They turn to the Lord. We know it's just about, just about with almost every nation. There are sometimes good kings, and there are sometimes bad kings. And they'll rule, and they'll lead, and bring a culture to be more evil, or towards more righteousness. And so about a hundred years later, the people of Nineveh, before a hundred years, but about a hundred years later, judgment comes upon them. Before judgment was spared, because they repented. But now their wickedness would continue on and, 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 and grow. It's in the last verse of Nahum. It says, There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom have not thy wickedness passed continually? And so they were a very wicked, a very, very evil um, people. Nahum had already established in the first part of Nahum 1 that, that God, God's power is established and that he has the sovereign right to judge people. To judge in a generic sense, as mentioned before. But now Nahum begins to announce specifically God's judgment upon Nineveh and the Assyrian people. Now again, the name Nahum, it means comforter. This book, largely all about God's judgment upon a nation, the name bears the title of Nahum, which means comfort. And this is a comfort to the Israelites because they've already been captive by the Babylonians and then they're being held captive by the Assyrians. And so now God is telling them that, you know, He tells them, He lets them know that I've afflicted thee. Even though it was the wicked nations, Babylon, Assyria, that took them into captivity, 
It was God in His sovereignty using wicked people even for His purpose. The Bible talks about even the wicked are thy sword. That God will use the wicked to accomplish His purpose. You know, no man can really resist His will in that sense. God will accomplish it. And God used the wicked to chastise His children. But God has given comfort through the prophet Nahum and saying, affliction will not come upon thee again. It's not going to come from the Assyrians a second time. That this is a comfort to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, that, that they would one day be free, that they would have peace. And so Nahum is a book of comfort while simultaneously being a book of judgment upon God's and Israel's enemies. In verse 8, it says, But with an overrunning flood, he will make another end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. You know, in Nineveh, the Babylonians, the Medes, um, the Persians, they were coming to battle against the Assyrians. The Assyrians at the time were the superpower. And so they were coming against them, but for a while the battle was kind of being kept away from the home front of Nineveh. But then eventually a flood ends up coming in. Um, the Tigris River ends up um, flooding. And, and, and so that, that kind of breaks down the walls. It softens the foundation. And they're able to break in. And it's the Bible ends up saying here as well. It says, For, they be, for while they be folding together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. That this was a time that they were feasting and they were drunk. You know, you can look at the chronicles of, um, I forget what it was. I mentioned it to you a couple of weeks ago. But about how it talks about how a flood came in and, and came and, and, and helped destroy um, Nineveh as the armies came in. But at the same time, they were drunk. You know, John Gill, you know, a Baptist commentator of the um, late 1700s, maybe early 1800s, he said this, he quotes Diodorus Siculus. I don't know if that's pronounced right or not, but it looks like it is, but sometimes the looks are not always the reality. But he quotes um, this um, philosopher or this other commentator from a couple of thousand years ago, and he says, the Ninevites were actually drunk when they were attacked by their enemy. You see, a historian relates that the king of Assyria, being elated with his fortune and thinking himself secure, feasted his army and gave them large quantities of wine. And while the whole army were indulging themselves, the enemy, having notice of their negligence and drunkenness, by deserters, fell upon them unawares in the night, when disordered and unprepared, and made a great slaughter among them, and forced the rest into the city, and in a little time took it. 
They shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry, as easily and as inevitably and irrecoverably. And so we see Nineveh was in a place of drunkenness. And they were able to become upon unawares. In verse 9 it says, But do ye imagine, what do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make another end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. And so first he, te- he, he wants Israel, no, affliction shall not rise up the second time. And that he's letting Nineveh know that ye imagine evil, basically, against the Lord. And, and what Nineveh imagines against God and against his chosen people, God tells them, I will make another end of this place. Sure, you're the superpower. But God is sovereign. And he bring of up, he, put a, he plant of nations, and he pluck of down nations. And so God lets them know, I will make another end of this place. It's basically another warning, just like Jonah was warning Nineveh. You see, he was given God's message. This time, they do not repent. And so they, they imagine things against the Lord. And God says, I will also make another end of their conspiracies against him and his people Israel. You know, you look at a lot of things that happen on and go on in the world. It's a spiritual battlefield. We see the physical. We see What's coming? What goes on? We see the wars. We hear about the rumors of wars. But there is spiritual wickedness, as the Bible says, in high places um, that are are about these things. And so God tells them, I'm going to make another end. And he even even tells them, you know, you're going to be drunk. And you know, they probably laughed it off at the time. But sure enough, is, it's what happens. It says, There is one come out of thee that imagine of evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. You know, it's speaking um, simultaneously of the king of Assyria at the time and really of the one to come. Um, and, that, and also, basically, of the satanic influence that was upon the king. And we see that it calls him a wicked counselor. You know, the root word um, here being that he was the counselor of Belial. That of the God of this world, not the God of actual creation, the true God, but the God that this world worships being Satan himself. That this king was a wicked counselor um, from Satan. That there was satanic influence upon the king. You think about Israel. It's the size of about New Jersey. Just a little bit larger. Very small um, country, so to speak. And yet, you look at the Middle East. You look at much of Russia. You look at North Korea. You look at much in China. And they despise Israel. Iran. 
You know it known for saying that they want to wipe Israel off the map. To completely demolish it. And you look at all the Middle East, you look at all these countries that come against it. What do they care for but a little state? Little place. The size of New Jersey. And the only thing it could be is the satanic influence that's behind it. Well, also, God in His sovereignty will use Satan to accomplish His purpose as well, chastening His people at times and stuff. But if we see in the end that God promises, that He reveals that there will be a time when Israel will begin to seek the Lord and that the remnant will be saved. But you look at what happened this last week. The president recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And nations were upset. They started burning things down. They started throwing little rockets and um, grenade type stuff into Israel in Jerusalem. Wrecking havoc. Palestinians said, we're going to have a three days of rage. You know, it's even going to get worse if the president follows through and actually moves the embassy to Jerusalem. Well, you know, Israel's not fearful of that. They know it's going to incite violence. But Jerusalem belongs to Israel. That's what God has said thousands of years ago. And he prophesied that Israel, even though they would be held captive at different times, even though they would, Jerusalem, that there would be not one stone that would not fall down asunder, that Israel, that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And we see that Titus came in in 70 AD, destroyed Jerusalem. And yet God said they would regather one day. That they would regather. That they would be um, in here at their land. And we see the complete fulfillment of that happening during the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where He will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And if any dare come against Him, that He will rule with an iron fist. You know, that he, with a rod of iron. That He will judge the nations. He will separate the sheep and the goats from one another. You see the world just in a panic attack because the president mentioned that Jerusalem belongs to Israel. Why? It's because of satanic influence to bring such a hatred against Israel. Not on the president's part, but on the nation's part. Different nations. We see three judgments are pronounced here against Nineveh. And as it says in verse 14, And the Lord have given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. The king of Assyria representing the nation would become destitute of descendants. That His name would be no more. That they would be a forgotten people. It wasn't until 1846 
when the ruins of Nineveh were discovered. So let's see, 1800 plus 600, so about 2400 years. People not really knowing of Nineveh. They knew of it as a place from the Bible, but no more did their descendants come. Their name would be no more. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. And so this other judgment is that the gods by which they feel they receive their power would be destroyed. That they would look at these images and think those gods that can't see, that can't hear, that can't smell, that can't speak. They thought they gave them power to be in authority. And so symbolically through destroying their gods, God is letting them know, you know what, their power is no more. It's going to be gone. says, I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. And we'll get into some more of the specifics um, in the upcoming um, messages um, where it talks about much of their um, great wickedness. But we see this third pronouncement of judgment would be basically that the king, representing Nineveh and Nineveh itself, the Assyrian people, would be put to death. And that would be the fall of Nineveh in 612 B.C. Nineveh, their king, under satanic influence, would come against God, would conspire against Him, conspire against the people of Israel. And this whole thing, again, the nations coming against Israel, it's a conspiracy against the God of heaven. Satan, Satan knows what God's Word says. And we see that Satan tried to have Jesus destroyed when he had Herod destroy all those two and under. Tried to have the Messiah cut off before it was his time. And so there was Satanic influence over and over. But you know today, Satan continues to roam about. He continues to be an evil one that imagines things against the Lord. You know, it is He that said, I will be like the Most High. He wanted to be God's replacement. That He would rise in greater power and that God would be subservient to Him. Satan is a wicked counselor. Satan is in the business of having you do things that are righteous. Sure, he may have you do some good deeds. He may blind you to the truth of the gospel and may blind people and say, hey, if you're a good person, if you're a good missionary, if you're a good representative of the church, that you'll have eternal life. But in Jesus, we'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. People were so consumed with their works. People would even say in the name of Jesus, have we not cast out many devils? Have we not done many wonderful works in thy name? 
Jesus never told us to come to him by our words. You see him in it early on with Abel and Cain. Abel offers a sacrifice that's basically of grace, you know, honoring, you know, what, what God required before we even knew it was required, and there was an animal sacrifice. An atonement, so to speak. But Cain, he wanted to gather from his works. He wanted to gather of all the fruit, his vegetables, and make, an, make a sacrifice that was not bloody. It destroys the picture of salvation. And we see that with Abel, he was well pleased. With Cain, he wasn't. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And that's why Jesus, when He came, He bled when He died for us. He didn't just die of old age. But He died a a propitiation death. That He would be our substitute. That He would shed His blood. And that it would be well satisfying to God the Father. It's an atonement for sins. Because the blood of bull and goats, though it was a picture, it could never save people from their sins. But Satan continues to imagine evil against the Lord. Tempts people to build up idols. To teach false gods is an affront to the God. The God that he knows, that he knows created him. Satan's a wicked counselor. You know, at those times, you know, you're feeling tempted, you're drawn into sin through your lust, you're enticed. Satan counsels you and says, it'll be all right, you deserve it. Enjoy it. Don't be stuck by God's commandments. Satan's a wicked counselor. There's nothing righteous or holy about him. One of the ways he gains influence over people is through drugs and alcohol. Promises people the time of their life. Celebrations. But they receive destruction, as we see the Ninevites do. Sure, they're celebrating in the streets, being drunk. Satan's a liar. He was a liar from the beginning, the Bible says. Now, at f- first, you know he was created a perfect being. But you know, after cre- the rest of creation, and we see that he was a liar to Eve. Well, he promises the time of their life. People receive destruction. They receive heartache through being controlled by addictions to intoxicating substances. We take Jesus on the other hand. Jesus is the one that promises an abundant life and fulfills it. He follows through. He's blessed His people with times of feasting and celebrations. He's told them to rejoice. You know, He's told them, enjoy your labor. Enjoy the food, the fruit of thy labor. Jesus is the one that makes the good wine. You know, you see Jesus' first miracle that He began in Canaan. 
He's saying John 2, verse 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, as Jesus told him, fill up the pots with water. And they were fearful at first. They were like, what, we're going to be giving them water? And he says, Say of unto him, Every man in the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested for his glory, and his disciples believe on him. Jesus produces the good stuff. He produces the good wine. You know, if they were already well drunk with intoxicating wine, and then he gives them more intoxicating wine, then Jesus would have been promoting drunkenness. You know, where the Bible says, give not thy neighbor a bottle um, to him um, to see his nakedness. You know, if he was given intoxicating beverages, he would be supporting them being drunk. Because they had already drunk a lot of whatever they had before. But Jesus makes the good stuff. We see blessing upon Israel in Deuteronomy 32 that um, God talks about the blessings um, that comes to His portion, to His children of Israel. And Deuteronomy 32.14 says, Butter of kine and milk of sheep with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat. And thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. Now you think about a time where there weren't a whole lot of sugary, uh, sugary um, drinks. They weren't drinking Pepsi in their day. Or Coca-Cola. That stuff's... St- all of that's disgusting. But you think about a place where you just have water, and oftentimes dirty water, and then you have that pure juice of the grape. A sweet beverage. It was a beverage of celebration, of rejoicing. And then oftentimes, when there'd be a little bit of fermentation to it, they would mix it with water to help purify the water for the people. Judges 9, verse 13 says, And the vine said unto them, This is a parable that is given for another illustration, but we see it. It says, Should I leave my wine, which chair of God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? So the vine in this parable is saying, should I really go over to rule over that which is not mine when my purpose is to share God and man? That through the juice of the grape would be good wine. Ecclesiastes 9.7 says, Go thy way and eat thy bread with joy and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accept of thy works. Well, God gives His children the good stuff. Satan has his counterfeits. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, and it's verse 14, okay, when he talks about the, the blessing he gave in verse 9. It says, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance, 
and that um, he has kept him as the apple of his eye. Um, and, and we see that the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. And we see that God gives him the blessing of the pure blood of the grape, the juice, so to speak, of the grape. And then go to verse 31. He says, For their rock, speaking to the heathen nations, the pagan nations, he says, For their rock, it's not is our rock. You know, we have Jesus Christ as our rock. You know what the world, they have their false idols. They have their celebrities. They have all kinds of idols they have. Their rock is not as our rock. Their rock is a shifting sand. Even our enemies themselves being judges. Yes, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of Gal. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of apps, venomous snakes. So here at first, God says, you know, I bless my people with good wine. But the heathen... The pagans, they have their own version of wine where it has become intoxicating and where it causes them to do things they would not do in a sober mind. And God calls it that it is is the poison of dragons. The, The venom of snakes. That it brings about destruction. Proverbs 21 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You know, today's levels of wine, of the alcohol content, would qualify in the Bible times as strong drink. Wine in Bible times was a lot more diluted. That's why, you know, when Peter talks about it's but the third hour of the day, that do you really expect people to be drunk? And now today, with today's wine, you know what? Just a little bit of wine then. You know what? They could end up getting drunk. But in Bible days, they would have had to consume a lot to be able to get into a drunken um, state. But even then, the Bible says wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Hosea 4.11 says, Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. Here in Nineveh, they're participating in their drinking feast and it's taking away their heart. You see with, um, with Solomon, you see oftentimes wine and woman took away his heart. Why would we want to induce beverages that Bible says... Take away the heart. You know, as Scripture points to the tragic results of alcohol. You see Noah drink some wine, commits incest. We see in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18 and 19, that wine is often brings about idolatry, a turning away of the heart from God. Proverbs 4.17 compares it to the wine of violence. 
How many homicides and violence happens during a drunken state? Proverbs 23.20 pairs it with gluttony and a lifestyle induced poverty. Proverbs 23.33 talks about how it brings about lust. That you'll behold strange woman. You know, you hear about a lot of sex scandals. A lot of them started with alcohol. It starts to break down the barrier, to break down our walls, break down our judgment. Habakkuk 2.15 mentions it brings about nakedness. Joel 1.5 talks about how it could bring about slothfulness. Luke 21.34, that, that it brings about irresponsibility. Romans 13.13, that brings about lawlessness. Revelation 17.2, fornication. How do we know the difference between the good stuff that Jesus makes and Satan's counterfeit? They both promise celebration, promise a time of rejoicing. God, His do bring about times of rejoicing, but Satan, we see, brings about judgment. Go ahead and turn to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23 and 31 will see the difference. Bible says, Look not thou upon the wine. Okay, well, we've read some scriptures where the Bible says, you know what, enjoy the wine. You know what, enjoy the wine. You know what, that, that it's a gift from God. But here it says, Look not thou upon the wine. And so there is something distinct about this. It says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. When it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, you know, when it's bubbling over, when, it, when it's become an intoxicating beverage, it the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange woman, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shall thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. And there's the addiction power of it. Satan is a wicked counselor. Satan is the great deceiver. Revelation 12.9 says, And a great, great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. And Satan was deceived of the whole world. He, is ca- he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And you know where he's at now? He's roaming on the earth. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us as believers, as Christians, be sober. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That we must be on the word. We must be ready for Satan's attacks. Nineveh, they weren't ready. They were drunk. 
They were far from being sober. And they had the judgment of God come upon them for use in another wicked nation to judge them. It's a wicked nation. We must be vigilant. We must be alert. We must be ready. We must realize that Satan is ready to attack at any time. How can demonic influences be recognized? Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 4. Because there is one amongst us, amongst this earth, that's a wicked counselor, seeks to have us devoured. So we must be alert, be aware of how, when, where he manifests himself. I've been in the Old Testament so much, my pages in the New Testament are getting stuck. First Timothy, verse chapter four. It says now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. See, for false doctrine, false teachings. You know, in the Catholic Church, they forbid their priests from marrying. You know what the Bible calls that? A doctrine of devils. Seducing spirits. That they speak lies in their hypocrisy. That while they outwardly look righteous, that in secret they're filled with darkness. And commanding you abstain from meats. So that lets you know that vegetarianism is a false doctrine. Amen? First John chapter 4. We see more that we see that Satan builds himself up. His demonic influence in false religion. 1 John chapter 4. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits which they are of God. What are they are of God? Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Satan will reveal himself through religion. You know what the apostles say? You know what? Satan is transformed as an angel of light. You know what? 
Don't be surprised when His ministers are transforming ministers of righteousness. There's all sorts of religions. You know, you can name many of them. Um, you know, where it be Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, and Seventh-day Adventists. They could go on and on. But it's a false religion. They teach a Jesus Christ that's not of the Bible. They teach that Jesus was not God in the flesh. And how many of them do good works? They do good deeds. But they're ministers of Satan. And many of the people in there, they're deceived. And so we don't treat them like they're our enemy, but as people in need of the gospel. From an ecclesiastical standpoint, okay, they are enemies of the gospel. But that's why we must get the gospel to them. Pagan worship of demonic idols was characterized by destructive practices. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, verse 35. But were mingled among the heathen and learned their works, and they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted. With blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works and went a whoring with their own inventions. Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against his people, insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. There we see sacrifice of children, there's demonic influence. You know what, Planned Parenthood? They're under demonic influence. It's the sacrifice of children. Well, they try to come out as something positive. We're trying to protect people from STDs. We're trying to um, help people have someone they could come to in a moment of crisis. Ministers of Satan being transformed into the ministers of righteousness. They're liars. Fake. We see the evil one is a wicked counselor. 1 Kings 18, verse 27. We see when Elijah was showing that his God was the one true God and that they just served but idols, false gods, and he mocked them. You know, you ever notice that the preachers of the Bible, they weren't always the most eloquent and polished speakers? See, Elijah's mocking He goes, cry out louder. Perhaps your God's sleeping. You know, maybe he's on a journey. You know, cry out loud to your gods. Nothing happened. And what they start doing, they start cutting themselves, bleeding themselves. Call upon their gods. You know, cutting comes from demonic influence. 
God doesn't cause us to mar His image. But Satan will deceive and and provoke us to cut ourselves. God said, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. We see cult prostitution. Deuteronomy 23, verse 17 and 18. Where there were the hired whores and hired sodomites. In the name of religion. That still happens around the world. You may not see that so much in America as much that we see that we're always openly aware of. Um, but you do see it under, with their gods, their idols, the celebrities. So someone could advance their career. They will sell their bodies. Same kind of thing. It may not be a temple, a religious temple, but it's the temple of Hollywood. So when there's the presence of evil, you know there's demonic influence. When there's occultic, new age practices. And you know what? The Spirit of God... You know what, Jesus in us, the Bible says that greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. The Bible says that the Spirit beareth witness. The Spirit will let you know when you're in the midst of evil to warn you, to caution you. You know what, God judges Nineveh because of the satanic influence that ran their whole society. But the God who judges is also the God that saves. So we see in verse 15, as we read, read beforehand, that you know affliction will not arise unto you another time. That God is going to protect, He's going to save Israel from this bondage, from these people. And God will destroy the devil and save us. Verse 15, it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of Him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Here, Nahum. Given the message. Said, this is a message of peace. This is a message of hope. To them, that they would no longer suffer at the hands of Assyria. This echoes the words that are found in um, Isaiah 52. In, in verse 7 it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigns. Isaiah was referring to the announcement of the deliverance from Babylon. Nahum, the deliverance from Nineveh. Both of them were ultimately, prophetically, referring to the Christmas story. Referring to the Gospel. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. Didn't know you could get Christmas out of Nahum. Luke chapter 2, verse 
says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddle and clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The promise of good tidings was to come to Israel through Jesus Christ. Who we as Gentiles would be drafted in. That we would be one body. That there wouldn't be Greek or Jew, male or female. But that we would all be able to be one body in Jesus Christ. You know, I go ahead and go to Isaiah again. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. And it goes on. Go ahead and turn back to Luke. Luke chapter 4. Verse 16. And she... Verse... 15. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He have sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. They were amazed because he spoke with authority. They're starting to realize, you know, there's something in this that's burning in our hearts. And then he says this, and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wonder that the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth and they said, it's not this Joseph's son. They're seeing him as just Joseph's son. They're not, they're, just, they're not quite realizing this is the son of God. 
What we see is in the Old Testament prophesied, we see physically that there would be deliverance from Babylon, that there would be deliverance from Assyria, but ultimately it's speaking of a spiritual deliverance, that we would be delivered from Satan, that Jesus would become our ransom, that he would die in our place, and that he would preach to us, we would have his word, and that he would set those that were captive free. And many more could be set free through the proclamation of the gospel. Turn to Romans chapter 10, and we'll close here. Romans 10 and verse 15 says, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Nahum, in the midst of speaking of judgment, there's a glimpse of the gospel. They'd have freedom first from the physical bondage that they've had. But what good is it if someone is freed physically, but then they die and face the judgment of God without Christ? Empty, vain. It will follow the lies of Satan. Destruction comes. But in them, it's the gospel. That there would be one that would give good tidings, that would come upon the mountains. You know, when Jesus comes back, set foot on Mount Olives, save his people Israel. But here he is today, calling upon us to turn to him. To be our Savior. To come to the one that offers the good wine. The one that said, at this time, I'm not going to eat and drink of the fruit of the vine with you. But in my Father's kingdom, I will drink with, it, with you there. I guarantee you, you know, we'll still be sober after drinking it too. Jesus gives us the good stuff. I just want to ask you, if you don't know Jesus as your own Savior, talk to me following the service. We'll show you from the Bible how you can know, without a doubt, Jesus could be your Savior. Let's pray. We'll dismiss. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you offered the good stuff. That, Lord, You offer grace. You offer peace. That You offer joy. That, yes, Satan imagines evil things against You. Brings the wicked to imagine evil things against You and Your children. But, Lord, You're our Redeemer. You're our Deliverer. And you offer them deliverance if they'll repent and turn to you by faith. Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you'll help us to give out more gospel tracts this week than we did last week. Help us to sow the seed. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.